Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, we are entering the wonderful, salty world of the clipper ships and hearing all about Thermopylae. Commissioned in 1868, but long overshadowed in public recognition by her rival, Cutty Sark, Thermopylae, in the minds of seamen of her time and subsequently, lives on as arguably the finest all-round clipper of them all. In 1879, before her second wool voyage from Australia, the Sydney Morning Herald eulogised... The fastest and handsomest ship in the world is now lying at the circular quay loading for London. And those who take pleasure in seeing a rare specimen of naval architecture should avail themselves of the opportunity of doing so. Of course, we allude to the Thermopylae, the celebrated Aberdeen Clipper. Thermopylae has all the appearance of a yacht, and yet she carries a good cargo, is a beautiful sea boat and stands up to her canvas well. We will hear today about her construction, the remarkable high standards demanded from her owners, George Thompson of Aberdeen, and her record as a thoroughbred of the Clipper class. The Clipper ships were astonishing to behold, sailing merchant ships of the 19th century and the culmination of centuries of refinements in sailing technology, leading to the most beautiful and fastest merchant ships ever built. They revolutionised global trade, tearing around the seas, carrying tea, wool, luxury goods and, of course, people in this era of migration that changed the population and economies of the world forever. Their heyday was short-lived, however, as increasingly effective steam engines and railways changed the way that goods were transported all over again. To find out about what made Thermopylae so special, I'm talking today with Captain Peter King. Peter retired from the merchant shipping industry a couple of years ago after over 62 years of continuous service in a wide range of maritime disciplines. 
In the 1980s, while serving as managing director of one of the Christian Salverson Group companies in Aberdeen, Peter developed an interest in the George Thompson Jr.'s Aberdeen-based shipping enterprise, leading to his researching and publishing the first definitive history of that long-forgotten shipping entity, the jewel in whose crown was the clipper Thermopylae. Here's Peter. Peter, thank you so much for talking to me today. Sam, my pleasure. So tell me about Thermopylae. Thermopylae came into my life in the 80s, 1980s, when I was working in Aberdeen in the offshore industry. And I became aware of her as a ship of the, the finest quality, but which very, very few people knew about. The Cutty Sark gets all the glory because she's still with us. Uh, sadly, the Thermopylae doesn't. Is it fair to say that Thermopylae it actually is one of the finest all-round clippers of them all? Yes, in my opinion, she was. But in, in a rather more complicated way than, than perhaps um, is generally understood. What do we know about her owners? Um, George Thompson, her owner, came from an interesting background. He a fairly humble background. His father was a soldier in the Royal Artillery who joined the Honourable East India Company and sadly within 18 months of going to India died of a fever at Madras. But George Thompson received a, a pretty good education um, and at the age he, he served his time as an apprentice clerk with the Aberdeen and London Shipping Company on the coastal trade. And then in 1825, at the age of tender age of 21, he set up in business to his own account as an insurance broker, ship broker, and fairly quickly also as a ship owner. He went into ship owning initially with small shares in coastal collier type trade, in the Baltic uh, herring trade, in the Baltic timber trade, before breaking into uh, the North Atlantic trade, where he, he, he bought in to shares and ships, which um, were carrying immigrants from Scotland to North America and timber back. And he brought the timber to his own account. So he was quite a businessman at the early stages of life, not just a ship owner. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary how early he got into this, uh, into, into this, this shipping world. And um, how far sort of into his career um, did Thermopylae come around? Did he kind of uh, did he to test his hand a little earlier first? Oh yes, he built up um, a, a significant fleet of ships. In fact, Thermopylae came in the latter part of his career, by which time he had a, an established company. From the North Atlantic trade, he began progressively moving out into overseas shipping, long distance shipping, initially on the uh, Cuban trade copper ore to Swansea. And then in the early 40s, 1840s, he began exploring Australia as a potential line. It was a long time, though, before he actually uh, had ships of his own on that trade, or, or he was established as a liner operator in that trade. His ships hitherto had been chartered out to non-vessel operating companies on the trade. At the same time, and significantly, Thompson bought into the local newly formed uh, shipping, uh, shipbuilding company, Walter Hood, at Footy in Aberdeen. Walter Hood is a bit of an enigma because no one knows very much about him, but he built a fine, fine class of ship, a hundred of them at least, before going out of business in 1881. And practically all Thompson's ships were built by Walter Hood, of which he was a senior shareholder, in Aberdeen. 
including the Thermopylae. Yeah, so a really important business contact made quite early on there. Yes, it's interesting to study the ownership of these ships as they emerged. You can see brackets of ship owner colleagues, not particularly ever going to operate ships, but like to put money into ships as a shareholding. And you get groupings of lawyers, farmers, coal merchants, you name it. Uh, Thompson had them. And, and they are, were distinct groupings, which you could um, very quickly recognise uh, the ownership of his ships by. And so what about the, the China trade? You said he was interested in, in what was happening in Australia. How did he fit that into his plans for the China tea trade? Thompson went into his first venture into um, long-haul trades, uh, was really the Prince of Wales, which commissioned from Hood's Yard in 1842, and was engaged by the New Zealand Company to run immigrants and freight out to New Zealand. Shortly after that, in 1847-48, Hood's built a succession of three very advanced, very fast barks and ships, all to the same rough dimension, which were really the foundation of Thomson going into the really long-haul trades. And of those, three of them, the Oliver Cromwell, the Phoenician, and the John Bunyan, the John Bunyan brought the first tea cargo from China in a, in a George Thompson bottom in 1849. And that was really his first footstep into that trade. And he built the trade up. But the time came when, with his developments in Australia, the need for ships to service the Australian trade led to his withdrawing from the China trade for six years. But he re-established in the China trade in 1862, and he built up a succession of ships engaged every season, up to a maximum of six ships. So he was a very significant owner, if not the biggest single owner, on the China tea trade. A couple of years after re-establishing, in 1864, he developed the China tea trade alongside his Australian trade on what was known in, in, in the business as a triangular trade. Namely, his ships went out to Australia with um, general cargo, usually light, high-value cargo. And there was a, a saying all the way along the line that Thompson had very close relationships with the Jewish merchant fraternity in London, and, and therein lay his success with outward cargoes. When the ships got out to Australia, discharged in Sydney, or, or Melbourne, they then loaded coal to George Thompson's account for the bunker stations in the Far East. And so the second leg of the triangle was from New South Wales generally, with coal to his account up to Japan or China. Then in China, or wherever he discharged, the ship was cleaned out, obviously, and proceeded either to Shanghai or Fushal to load tea. And that was really the opening into the China tea trade in, in a, an established way. And interesting, that triangular trade continued even after Thomson had gone into steam with his first steamer so engaged for on one voyage a year on just the same triangular route to the intense irritation of the established Far East conference line led by John Swire. I'm fascinated with this um, loading the loading the ship up with coal from Australia and taking it to China and then kind of refitting it to take it to fill it up with tea. It must have been unbelievably filthy having had a cargo of coal and then transported that all the way to China. 
Yes, no doubt he had some cadets on board. <laughs> some people to help him. Um, out of interest, the how do you get hold of the archive material for tracing this kind of career? Is it easy to get hold of? No. Uh, in a word, the Thompsons were very, very poorly documented. The archives are virtually nil. There was one tin black box up in Huntley, which I found, owned by the family, which had some documents. But generally, one had to go through a, quite a, a difficult source. And I built the overall picture of, the, of George Thompson's operation really from scarring the register of British ships in Aberdeen. And my late wife um, spent nearly six months in the cellars of the, of the customs house scarring through the various ships which were owned by George Thompson, a task which was made more difficult because at one stage there were three George Thompsons <laughs> contemporaneously owning ships <laughs> in Aberdeen. <laughs> it was a nightmare, yeah. <laughs> Very um, difficult and, indeed. But it, it, it was fun, and gradually, by using that and a myriad of other sources, one pieced together something which you could say was, yes, that, that fits. So we're at a stage now where um, Thompson's established in the China trade, this triangular trade going out to Australia and then China, and it's at this stage that the, the hull of Thermopylae is laid down. So let's just have a think about the construction of, of this wonderful ship, because that's what really made her unique, isn't it? Yes, in part. Uh, I wouldn't say it made her unique because there were quite a large number of composite ships already at sea before she was laid down in 1868. Her real interest, she is composite, namely that she had an iron framework ship form to which on the outside was affixed teak elm planking. Why was she composite? Well, that is the important element. For years, the uh, wooden ships had proven themselves too heavy, too small for economic trading, but they were about the only thing they had. And the great thing about a wooden ship was that you could affix copper anti-fouling plates or yellow metal anti-fouling plates to their hulls. Iron had been a reality for some time, going back almost to the beginning of the 19th century, but um, iron had a number of major problems attaching to it, the most difficult of which was that there was no effective anti-fouling. You couldn't hammer on uh, sheets of yellow metal onto an iron hull. It didn't work. The Navy tried it with intermediate planking, but that didn't work very effectively. So anti-fouling was a real problem. An iron ship, you could build larger and cheaper, but it, you couldn't anti-foul it at that stage with the development of the anti-fouling materials to hand. The other thing about an iron ship, which was advantageous, was that size to size, they were very much, they offer very much larger hull form, hull capacity than a, than a wooden ship. And they didn't get saturated with um, seawater over the years, which a wooden ship did. And um, accordingly, although iron was there, you couldn't afford to dry dock the vessel halfway through every voyage. So it, it wasn't... Um, yet forthcoming as a hull construction media. The other thing about iron, which had distinct disadvantage, was that in the then state of ventilation in the holds of a sailing ship, it raised an awful lot of uh, wet damage to the cargo as a result of condensation. Particularly bad for tea. Particularly bad for tea, yes. Yeah. 
So it wasn't favoured by the tea merchants um, and those fixing ships. And it had one other major problem, in fact, that they hadn't yet sorted out how to correct the compasses on an iron ship, and that led to a number of, of very serious casualties. So she was a composite ship. Why was she different? Well, going back in history somewhat, up to the time she'd been built, there were over seven distinct patents in existence covering iron ships, only one of which, the patent of John Jordan in 1851, was regarded as a, um, a sound basis covering the whole business of a composite-built ship. And Jordan held the shipbuilding market in the UK to ransom with patent um, fee demands until, he, in, in fact, he was finally kicked out in the High Court, who, who ordered that um, his patent was not specific enough and was not uh, unique enough. But he was there. Lloyd's Register were distinctly slow in acknowledging the um, peculiar features of a composite-built ship. Mm. Did they um, have separate rules for kind of wood and then uh, separate rules for yeah. iron, but nothing for between the two? No, absolutely so. They hadn't prepared any specific rules for composite ships, I think probably because they thought it was a short-lived phenomena. But they they got over the problem rather with some difficulty by using the rules of wooden ships as they applied and the rules for iron ships as they applied and leaving the interpretation to the poor old surveyor on the spot. Now, this was not satisfactory. And a succession of ship owners and shipbuilders canvassed Lloyd's Register with a view to their producing rules. They were loath to do this, but in the Lloyd's Register of 1862, the company or the society Lloyd's Register produced a memorandum, a one-page memorandum with 11 points on it for the benefit of people considering constructing ships in the composite form. But it still had attaching to it the fact that each ship was to be considered on its merits as an experimental ship, and it was subject to a two-year special survey, which was obviously a big economic disadvantage. Yeah, actually, me being classed as experimental doesn't doesn't help for numbers of reasons. No. The shipbuilders, and particularly Alexander Stevens on the Clyde, lobbied Lloyd's Register hard for something more satisfactory. In 1866, Lloyd's Register commissioned one of their senior surveyors, Bernard Weymouth, to... Um, case a set of rules or suggestions for the construction of composite ships. And these were really an expansion of the of the one-page memorandum. In 1866, he produced this um, document. It was approved by the committee. It was still only suggestions. And I, I suspect that the, the fact they weren't made rules might have had something to do with the patent claims of Mr. Jordan, because the rules that came out, or the, the suggestions that came out from Lloyd's, were bore dramatic resemblance to the patent produced by Jordan. They came out, and they came out as a suite of suggestions with their own tables for scantlings and materials, and eventually, or, or quite quickly in fact, the experimental and the two-year survey cycle were dropped. And they went to full 14, 16-year-old, 16-year. Uh, 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Soviet cycles. It's interesting seeing how they kind of coped with it, isn't it? How they sort of almost rolled with the punches. Yes, it is. But interestingly also, of course, and this is a great point about Thermopylae, at the same time that Bernard Weymouth, the senior surveyor, was casing the rules or the suggestions for composite-built ships, he was actually designing the Thermopylae on behalf of George Thompson. Oh. <laughs> now, e- even in uh, their sort of 100th or 150th um, anniversary publication, it does. the questions are raised, where do um, conflicts of interest come in? I have argued, and I, I don't know whether I'm right, but I've talked it through at length with authorities on it, I've argued that just possibly he may have got away with it by suggesting to the committee that he was gaining the experience thereby, whereby he he could case the suggestions in a professional way. And I think that that probably has got some merit. But it, it is a very interesting fact that he, he designed, he certainly designed the whole form and the sale plan of the Thermopylae. Probably the detail was done in, in Aberdeen by, by um, one of the Thompson family, Cornelius. But he certainly did the plans for the hull, the the lines, and, and the sail plan. It's interesting that it was originally classed as experimental, and I suppose all of those who were actually engaged in the composite construction market thought that was a little unfair and tried to get it changed. But composite construction was short-lived in the end. I mean, the, the, the idea of calling it experimental is in some terms right, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, you have to see the, the, the construction of the Thermopylae in 1868, just a year before the Suez Canal opened, and already Alfred Holtz was sending steamers round the Cape of an advanced engine design, which spelled out that, that the the China tea trade was going to fall in fairly short order to the steamer after the opening of the canal. So it, it was a venture on the part of George Thompson to put the ship together. and And the fact that she was an outstanding ship within Thompson's outstanding fleet is interesting because the design, although Walter Hood had produced some very good designs of ships and some very fast ships at that, Thermopylae's form, very fine, and um, 
very well uh, tailored. She was nonetheless a different ship to the Walter Hood standard design, distinctly different. And I'm sure that this was what Thompson was engaging in when he took Weymouth on to do the design, because he clearly wanted to have a ship which was going to be first in class even before she actually put to sea. Yeah. And we've got some, we do have some figures. I've, I've just seen some from the record passages of her, the legs of her voyages. These are extraordinary, aren't they? And they, they must have been um, um, hugely celebrated. Indeed, they were. One of the outstanding features of Thermopylae, apart from her hull construction, was the fact that Thompson moved from always employing or almost invariably employing companies' men, time-served companies' men, to command the ship to place in command uh, an outsider, an Englishman, to boot. Uh, most of his chaps were Scots. He put in an Englishman from Suffolk, Robert Kemble. He was known in the business as Pylon Kemble, who was an exceptionally good commander. I mean, one had people who, who commanders who drove their ships and drove them under. Uh, these were pretty delicate ships. Campbell drove a very hard ship, but he was very well liked by his officers and crew, very well respected. And on the first voyage out, he established a record to Melbourne, which I believe is still for a square rig ship of 63 days, still holds the record. It's always difficult, as you can probably appreciate, to actually measure the lengths of these voyages, because it all depends where they measured it from. Was it dock to dock, pilot to pilot? Sometimes it was one, sometimes it was the other. It was all rather convenient as to which record you wanted to beat. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So it wasn't so the London to Melbourne in sixty-three days. That's it. That is uh, is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, and we've got some other other ones here. Newcastle to Shanghai in thirty-one days. Again, um, it, it, it was an outstandingly fast voyage because a lot of ships were engaged by then in the triangular trade, who were then going on to do the tea clipper run. But finally, the Fouchard to London, which he achieved in 91 days, was absolutely outstanding. Sadly, though, 12 days later, the Sir Lancelot lumbered in, having clipped two days off that record. But at the time, it was the, the record uh, homeward bound from Fouchard. And um, it was undoubtedly both the ship and the character of the commander and his officers. It's interesting to note that the likes of Lubbock, who, whose books I find very useful, but slightly too romantic, perhaps, he always refers to the first-class crews that were on board these ships, Thermopylae in particular. They had good officers, they had good commanders, because that's the company way. The, 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 the crew, the deckhands, tended to be whatever they could pick up around the world because the crew tended to desert as soon as they got to Melbourne to go off into the gold rushes of one form or another. And the commanders then picked up whatever they could get. And um, they were a pretty polyglot crowd. And they certainly weren't the, 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 the all-English champions that Lubbock yeah. talked about. It's amazingly complex, isn't it, when you think about the quality of the the crews and the commanders and also the different ports and, and how the record is adjusted according to, to what port you're going to, because they didn't all leave from the same place, did they? Absolutely not. They all had the South China Sea to beat down, or they might actually take the risk and go outside. But most experienced commanders took the South China Sea route. But it depended upon whether you loaded it in the Shanghai group of ports or whether you loaded at Fuxiao, which gave you an immediate 400 mile advantage. But the prime the first clip of the tea 
came at a time that the southwest monsoons were blowing in the Indian Ocean and up the China Sea at a strong southerly, southeasterly wind. So the ships that picked up which were selected, nominated for the first clip, namely those which had a reputation, they always had a beat down the South China Sea, which is a hazardous place, before they got out into the Indian Ocean and then had to face the southwest monsoons in the Indian Ocean. So the ships had to be capable of beating to windward well. That was a prerequisite of a China clipper, was her ability to beat to windward. And Thermopylae was extremely good at that. She was designed for the tea trade, and she only subsequently went into other trades by, by force of circumstances. She was a tea clipper designed for that trade, and she was good at running to windward. And what about the competition between Thermopylae and the Cutty Sark? Is that sort of fairly represented or is it sort of overly romanticised? What do you think of that? Yes, <laughs> I think it was grossly over-romanticised. On the China tea trade, Thermopylae had a, a better running performance than Cutty Sark. And I think myself that that probably reflects the quality of her command. Throughout the time, or almost the whole time she was on the China tea trade, she was commanded by Robert Kemble, who was a supremely good commander. She um, cut his heart, beat him on one occasion, uh, and that was, uh, or beat his Mopoli on one occasion, and that was at a change of command from Kemble leaving to go to take command of the Aristides and um, his chief officer taking over. So perhaps for one voyage, lack of experience may have um, counted against him. And there was the voyage when... Um, would seem that Cutty Sark was pulling ahead, but then she lost her rudder. And although the um, the commander of the Cutty Sark undertook a magnificent piece of um, damage control and, and re-rigging a rudder, he didn't make up the time, but morally he's always been awarded that victory as well. So on the tea trade, Thermopylae was undoubtedly a superior ship, and she was on the trade for longer than the Cutty Sark was. She wasn't always the first ship in. In fact, um, she wasn't only, only a couple of times was she the first ship in. But she was consistently good. She was always in the top five. The others making up the top five might be in the top five one year and out of the top five the next. But Thermopylae was always in the top five. When the when she got pushed out of the China tea trade by steam, and and the opening of the of the Suez Canal. She, along with the other clippers, uh, went into the Australian wool trade. And there the climatic conditions were very different. Um, wool was a heavier cargo, much heavier cargo. You were faced with the strong winds in, in, along the route to the, the Cape, Cape Horn. Very strong winds from the west. And Cutisark generally proved the better ship, heavy laden with the wind aft. Seamen of their time and subsequently always said that Thermopylae was better in lighter winds, lighter laden, uh, and when required to beat to windwards, whereas which was the China tea trade, whereas the um, Cutty Sark was better in the wool trade, where heavily laden with the wind aft uh, and a long, a prolonged voyage with the wind aft in heavy seas. Interestingly. In more recent years, um, research work done at the uh, Greenwich Maritime University, where they computer uh, modelled the two ships' hulls, 
actually confirm what the sailors had said for the last 150 years, namely that, that Thermopylae had a hull which was better for beating to windward, fairly likely laden, and indeed that Cutisark had a better hull for the heavier laden wool trade. So how did the introduction of the triple expansion steam engine change everything? For, for a number of years, steam as a, a propulsion had stagnated um, because the the boiler systems available um, were not advanced enough to power uh, what was known as triple expansion steam. Uh, and accordingly, it was not economic for other than high-speed passenger ships and mail steamers. It was not economic for freighters, and Thermopylae was a freighter, to be powered by steam. In 1882, George Thompson, ironically, commissioned his first steamer, and this was the first successful application of triple expansion steam, and at a stroke, the long-haul trades um, were opened up economically to steam. Um, the the ship that bore this engine, designed by Kirk, the engineer, um, had a triple expansion steam engine. That was a well-known feature and had been used unsuccessfully earlier on a similar ship. The principle of triple expansion steam was known and understood. What they hadn't, but was triple expansion steam to work, you needed much higher pressure than was available from the, the current range of boilers. And uniquely into the Aberdeen's boiler scene came what was known as Fox's corrugated flue. The, the furnace was a corrugated flue which withstood the pressure upon it of, of the steam. And, and they were able to introduce much higher pressure steam going up to 150 pounds per square inch as opposed to about 60 pounds per square inch, which had been the, the limit hitherto. The impact of that was that you could carry more cargo than you did coal. Before that, it was the opposite way around. But it was ironic that of all the owners to actually break into the trade with triple expansion steam, it was George Thompson, who was one of the greatest um, clipper owners on the trade, who did it. He just turned his uh, turned the genius to the new technology. He turned the genius, but not his financial um, to the new technology. He He had the technology. He didn't exploit it because every ship had to be paid for out of shareholders' money. There were no mortgages, loans or anything of that nature. And sadly, that was um, the beginning of the end of George Thompson because he just was not adventurous enough in terms of um, capital spends, even though he had good financial backing, to develop a fleet quickly enough. And what about the twilight of uh, Thermopylae's career? How, what, how did she end up with old bones? Yeah, well, by the end of the um, 1880s, she was becoming an old ship, undoubtedly. She'd been hard, well-maintained, but hard run. And it was getting increasingly difficult to get paying cargoes homewards and the, the insurance on freight carried by a sailing ship was getting more and more. And it was decided to dispose of her. Accordingly, she was sold in Rotterdam. She carried her last two cargoes were um, oil shale from New South Wales, which was used in the production or the, the, the enhancing of town gas for lighting. 
not the sort of cargo which um, she was going to make any money out of. And she was sold to Canadian interests via an intermediary to be used on the West Coast North America trade to the Far East and Southeast Asia, primarily bringing rice back to feed the large Chinese community, which were now building up in the West Coast ports, where they're engaged as labor in um, various capital projects and the railways, and then carried back freight to the Far East, timber, flour, and coal. And she served on that trade for about five years. She took on Nova Scotian captain and crew. They proved to be good, but she was a very expensive ship. She was losing the new owners a lot of money. They um, finally bit the bullet and sold her eventually via lease to the Portuguese Navy. The Portuguese intended to use her as a sail training ship, and they um, undertook the production of plans showing her conversion to a sail training ship. When they finally materialized, it became obvious the ship was too elderly and too decrepit to be used for that purpose. So she was decommissioned as a coal hulk for the Portuguese Navy. And there she rested on the 13th of October, 1907. She, being no further use to the Portuguese Navy, was towed out at a royal regatta presided over by the Queen of Portugal and was sunk with two whitehead torpedoes fired by torpedo boats off Cascades in the mouth of the River Tagus. Two torpedoes hit the ship. A third torpedo missed and ran up a bathing beach, adjacent, <laughs> um, which must have been rather fun. And it suggested that that, that particular torpedo was fired by the King of Portugal, <laughs> who was actually embarked. The King himself. These, um, the King himself, yes. But as on all these things, it was, it was um, kept fairly quiet. So that was the end of her. And just recently, in 2002 and thereabouts, there have been subaqua archaeological digs on her. There's not much left of her, um, but it's interesting to just see what is there and, and what you can identify from the pictures. Yeah. Well, it's a w wonderful story, and thank you so much for sharing it with us today, Peter. I've really enjoyed hearing about this wonderful clipper ship. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you all so much for listening today. Do please take the time to find the Society for Nautical Research on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Please also take the time to find the Mariner's Mirror podcast's own YouTube channel, where we have some wonderful and innovative videos about our maritime past. But best of all, please, please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost very much and your annual subscription will help support this podcast. It will help us publish our quarterly journal called The Mariner's Mirror, which has been published for over a century. And it will go towards helping to preserve and protect our maritime past. Members also receive other benefits, not least of which is being able to attend our annual general meeting and have dinner afterwards on the gun decks of HMS Victory. And we have just launched a series of online winter lectures presented by some of the biggest names in maritime history, though to attend them, you do have to be a paying member. So go on. And if you aren't a member already, please join Treat Yourself. And we hope to see you soon.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 